welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Alexander Mikabiritze, author of The Napoleonic Wars, A Global History, published by Oxford University Press, February 10th, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's, it's a pleasure and honor to be back. Um, so first, how did you get into studying and writing on the Napoleonic Wars? Um, as, as far as I remember myself, I've been interested in, in history, uh, initially in history of my own home, you know, my homeland, uh, Georgia. Uh, and then uh, about at about the age of 10, I stumbled upon a biography of Napoleon. And it, that biography, like in, in many cases, um, just bewitched me, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, the story of Napoleon's uh, birth, his rise to power, his exploits. Um, I think it had this romantic aura of it that, that fascinates so many people. And um, mm-hmm. I, I was so mesmerized by it that I, I tried to find more books about it, which was not a particularly easy task to do in in uh, early 1990s uh, Georgia uh, as a uh, amidst the war and economic crisis and complete misery. Um, and uh, But I think during those years of, of uh, hardship, reading about Napoleon and reading about French Revolution, I uh, think sustained me and allowed me to just really uh, observe events from a different point of view. And, um, and I remember spending nights as war was raging in downtown Tbilisi, where I was living at the time, uh, and reading about the events of the terror and then the events of uh, Vandemir and of 1795 and Napoleon's rise to power. Um, and and uh, gradually then uh, I focused more and more on, on exploring history. And even though I didn't plan to become a professional historian, I actually did my first degree in law. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, I decided to make a switch and, and uh, pursue a PhD in history specializing in Napoleonic history. Mm-hmm. And now, you know a number of languages, is that correct? Um, I do. Uh, I think uh, uh, that's not a particularly unusual thing for a European. Uh, <laughs> <so> <laughs> to, uh, I know in, in America, it, uh, it is a bit uh, unusual to speak more than you know, two or three languages, but I do. I, I'm, I was born and raised in the um, Soviet Union, so... Um, uh, although I'm an ethnic Georgian and Georgian is my native tongue, I was certainly taught the Russian from an early, from early childhood. So I can, uh, I'm quite fluent in it. And I also picked up along the way, uh, English and French. And I have a working knowledge of, uh, uh Latin and Italian, uh, with uh, a smattering of, uh, uh, Polish and Bulgarian and other languages, certainly enough just to uh, conduct research in it. Mm-hmm. Um, which have been quite useful in my own studies. Mm-hmm. And that's why I asked the question, because it does help with your research, I assume. Let's talk about the, um, the so the, the book has a grand scope, you know, the entire history of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, 1792 to 1815, I guess, including the revolution. How did you, with all the material out there already, how did you break it down? How did you um, make this different from the other histories that are out there? I think um, I approached it from, uh, um, first of all, from a different point of view, and then I organized it in a slightly different uh, way. So uh, Napoleonic Wars is one of the most researched and written about period of modern history. 
Um, every year you see publications that uh, explore some uh, element of it. But the vast majority, I would say, almost all of the titles that appear are uh, Eurocentric. So is they focus on events in Europe. And more than that, they focus on specific campaigns. So, for example, there is a, a, a huge body of scholarship on the Peninsula War, as we call the conflict between France and Britain and Spain over the control and future of the uh, Spanish and Portuguese monarchies. Um, and there is, of course, a separate body of scholarship of Napoleon's own campaigns, uh, whether in 1805 in, in Central Europe or then 1806, 1807 in northern parts of Europe, and then, of course, more famously, uh, Napoleon's invasion of Russia and then his defeat and, and um, collapse of the empire. And that's the core of Napoleonic scholarship. That's what uh, the vast majority of books are about. But um, um, ever since coming to the United States and then really devoting myself seriously to the uh, study of Napoleonic era, I was uh, a bit perplexed by it but because it, um, this approach excludes uh, a, a lot of territory and a lot of events that have been taking place uh, during this period. So, for example, very rarely will you find in the traditional narrative of Napoleonic Wars a discussion of events even in northern uh, Europe, so let's say struggle for the Scandinavian, uh, that was uh, a part and parcel of Napoleonic Wars, mm. or discussion of events in southeast Europe uh, for this, you know, events in, in the Balkan Peninsula. Uh, so that always uh, uh, perplexed me. Um, and then looking more globally, uh, the traditional approach um, has very little to say about how events in Asia, in Africa, or to, for me, uh, more crucially, Latin America tie into this larger scope of Napoleonic uh, wars. And that was one of the uh, reasons why I wanted to craft this book. Uh, looking not just at Europe, as, as it traditionally has been done, but uh, expanding the confines to cover the uh, uh, impact of Napoleonic Wars around the, uh, around the globe. Um, to do that, of course, is a, is a rather challenging task because you are dealing with a, uh, an, ex an event of very large scope, um, and in order to highlight its impact around the world, you have to, uh, in many respects, to repeat the discussion or, you know, retread the, the path um, so that to make sure that the reader stays abreast of events. So what I did is uh, I structured this book both geographically but also uh, chronologically. Mm -hmm. So we start, as you have mentioned, with the French Revolutionary Wars in 1792. And then initially we focus on events in Europe. So in that sense, the book follows the uh, more familiar path. But once we reach Napoleon, um, especially his campaign in Egypt, uh, which I, I, I believe was one of the crucial moments of this entire period, and, and certainly a crucial moment for the history of what we now call Middle East, mm -hmm. then we start branching out uh, just a little bit uh, outside Europe. So we move to Egypt, and then in the, in the book I try to underscore that uh, the, the campaign in Egypt had far wider ramifications out well beyond Egypt itself, to Iran, to uh, Oman, to Yemen, to, to India. Um, and then uh, we use that, that kind of approach to slowly expand the narrative and, and the coverage to include um, other parts of the world. And I try to do it in, in uh, uh, one chapter per region. Mm -hmm. So I have one chapter that I call the Western Question. 
which I believe but right, most of your listeners probably are familiar with the Eastern question, but few uh, might have uh, dealt with this, what I call a Western question of uh, what to, what would happen to the Latin uh, American colonies, um, to Spanish and Portuguese possessions once the metropolis, right, Spain and, and, and Portugal came under French control. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have a separate chapter on Asia, uh, a separate uh, chapter on North America, and, and so on. And I, I think this approach, even though there is certain redundancy to it, since uh, parts of those chapters uh, hark back to the material that I've, uh, I cover in earlier chapters, mm-hmm. but this way, um, it also makes the material self-contained, where if the reader is interested in just a regional coverage of what happened in the Middle East, or what happened in Iran, or what happened in India, they can deal with that chapter and reread it and get the information, uh, all the information needed without necessarily going back and, and, and rummaging through the earlier chapters. Mm-hmm. Now, when you, um, so when you talk about the effects, the global effect of the wars, are you talking, uh, beyond simply maybe diplomacy or economics? Are you talking about military activity as well? You know, maybe civil wars or, or revolutions or, or other things like that? Yes, sir. Um, what I see uh, here is, is the impact of Napoleonic Wars on, on several levels. Um, uh, certainly, we can start with ideological impact. Now, it's not as pronounced in many in, in some parts of the world, but we can see that in, in places like Latin America, where the uh, ideas of the French Revolution, the ideas of Napoleonic changes, let's say the Constitution of 1812 uh, that was introduced um uh, uh, well, 1808, first introduced by Napoleon and revised by the uh, Spanish liberals in 1812, that has the ideological impact uh, well beyond Europe. I'm speaking with Alexander Mikabaridze, author of The Napoleonic Wars. You can find more information on his Facebook page or on his academic page at Louisiana State University, Shreveport. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. If you're interested in other kinds of history, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. Besides the ideological, uh, well, next point uh, will be the political, diplomatic, and of course military. Since Napoleonic Wars, in its in their scale and intensity, were the largest conflict the world has seen up to that moment. Um, and what I mean by that is, yes, there was a Seven Years' War, and there was the War of Spanish Succession that had European countries fighting uh, in various parts of the world, but in terms of its scale and reach, Napoleonic Wars dwarfed them. We see this war actually military operations taking place in North America, in the Caribbean, in South America, in parts of Africa, uh, and, and of course uh, parts of the Middle East, India, uh, as far as uh, uh, China and Japan. So in terms of the scale, this is the quite, certainly the largest conflict. Uh, the uh, the world has seen up to that moment, uh, and in, in in sheer numbers, especially in, when we deal with uh, Europe, we see mobilizations on on scale that are simply unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um, think about the levee and must that the French uh, government uh, issued in seventeen 
93, right, mobilizing hundreds of thousands of men, or think about Napoleon's own mobilization efforts or leading an army of some 600,000 men into Russia in 1812. These are astonishing numbers, uh, certainly dwarfing anything that was uh, seen in, in earlier eras. Uh, or in the early uh, decades leading up to this moment, uh, uh, this war. And then, um, so this is ideological, right, political, uh, uh, slash diplomatic, military. And um, I do try to bring uh, um, e- economics into this, um, into this discussion. Mm-hmm. I would have loved to see more of it, uh, but I think it would have <laughs> made the book much longer and maybe more difficult to read. But economics are crucial to this. And to, to give your listener just a sense of it, Mm-hmm. Mexico, sorry, uh, Spain drew a lot of its money from the silver mines in Mexico and other parts of its colonies. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, that silver sustained not just the uh, Spanish economy, but it actually helped the French because there was uh, the uh, mutual uh, dependency between the French and the Spanish uh, economy, especially when it came to silver. But it also came to have impact on, on parts of Asia, as, as some of your readers probably know. Much of the silver that was mined in the Americas ultimately ended up in, in places like India, but especially China. Hmm. Uh, but the Napoleonic uh, Wars uh, had an impact on the uh, ability of Spanish monarchy to extract the silver and most crucially to transport silver. And so that has then the ramifications for both a European economy and, of course, beyond that to uh, China. Mm-hmm. Or uh, I will remind your uh, listeners uh, about the constitution, uh, about the continental system mm-hmm. that Napoleon tried to implement in, between 1806 and 1814. Now, some people confuse uh, continental system with continental blockade, and what I try in this book is, is highlight that we are talking about two um, interrelated and oftentimes intertwined uh, systems, but nonetheless, these are two different concepts. Mm-hmm. Continental blockade was uh, Napoleon's attempt to isolate uh, U- uh, European economy from the British uh, industrializing, the fast industrializing uh, uh, economy. It was very hard to compete with the British uh, because of that industrial capacity that Britain was fast developing. In fact, one of the core roots of the French, you know, roots for why a revolution took place in uh, France in 1789 was the economic uh, uh, issues, financial and economic issues, certainly, mm-hmm. uh, which made which were made worse by the French monarchy's decision to sign a, f- a free trade treaty with British in 1786, the so-called Eden Treaty, that opened French market to the British goods, and of course, uh, those goods were f- uh, cheaper mm-hmm. and produced much larger quantities than the French, and French uh, companies found it very difficult to compete with the British. So Napoleon understood that, and he tried to isolate not just French economy, but the rest actually of Europe's economy from this uh, strong competitor that was um, British industri- industrial economy uh, by creating this blockade. Now, it was not a complete isolation. In fact, uh, if you if we read Napoleon's letters and his orders, he's very specific that he wants to continue to trade with the British. What he doesn't want is to buy anything from the British while allowing the British to buy European produce. Uh, so it's a, it's a more of a self-isolation hmm. where you di- try to dictate terms of engagement. Um, ultimately, what he had in mind was to uh, draw the, uh, the liquidity of the, of the uh, British uh, species, right, of, of the currency by forcing them to pay cash every time they came to buy uh, European produce while not buying anything that the British bought. 
So that's the blockade. But there is a bigger picture that I lay out in uh, in the book of continental system, and that was a much larger concept Napoleon had in mind of structural changes that he saw introduced within Europe, and then ultimately he wanted to expand that uh, to the colonies as well. Um, so to answer your question, the book does cover uh, both ideology, politics, diplomacy, military, and economics. Now, uh, one of the reviews that I received from an uh, uh, eminent uh, historian of the French Revolution, Lynn Hunt, uh, highlighted that uh, I don't go into details on cultural and gender issues, and that's true. For just for no other reason but space, um, <laughs> to cover all the above mentioned issues already has taken almost thousand pages. <laughs> At those other levels, uh, would have would have made this book double the size. So, for this period, how important was the man Napoleon in everything that happened versus? the situation in the world at this time? Uh, that's a very good question. And uh, my take, I think, is uh, c uh, quite different from what has been written, um, I think, by my predecessors. Um, and let me explain what I mean by this. Um, to start with, I, I believe that the war was inevitable. And again, not to be this predeterministic, right? And uh, uh, But... Um, France, at the end of the French Revolutionary Wars, France was in a remarkable position. Um, it has managed to secure um, dominance in much of Western Europe. Mm -hmm. It was able to secure a buffer zone that stretched from uh, Belgium down to Italy, uh, and that gave it a, a tremendous power. Uh, my the, the point I'm arguing in the book is that I cannot imagine any government uh, in France whether there was a Bonaparte or not, but any government in France that would willingly give up the acquisitions that it had made or that France had made in the previous decade. So if we accept this framework that France was already in a position of power, even without Bonaparte being a first consul, mm -hmm. then I believe that that situation would have made it more conducive to, uh, to conflict because France's dominance would have been quite difficult to bear for other European powers. Mm -hmm. We know that the directory, the French government that was in charge from 1795 to 1799, pursued a very aggressive foreign policy. So that's before even Napoleon came to power uh, in 17 in November of 1799. The directory was very aggressive in, in pushing the boundaries of French uh, Republic, in creating the sister republics in, in Belgium, in Switzerland, in parts of Italy. So Napoleon, in that sense, came already to pre-existing situation where uh, France was successful militarily, and France was able to throw its weight around. Now, what the uniqueness that Napoleon brings to this situation is that he's very capable man. Right? Whether you like him or not, I think both sides, right, those who are uh, uh, very fond of him and those who can't stand him, mm -hmm. admit and give him credit for his uh, ability, both personal and, and, and uh, uh, organizational, to uh, restructure the French government and make it very efficient and very hard to deal with. He's capable on the battlefield, certainly uh, in the period from 1801 to 1807, he is virtually unstoppable. And that then transformed this paradigm of France being supreme in Western Europe to France being supreme in Europe. Um, so 
and that of course is, is a crucial element so here then to answer your question france was already in position of power mm-hmm. whether bonaparte k would have been the first consul or not whether there was another general who had uh, managed to come to power and there was no lack of ambitious men in france at this time mm-hmm. um france would have retained that uh, its unique position and that would have uh, engendered tensions with other powers whose interests French have violated, especially Austrian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Napoleon made the situation even even uh, even more unique by a series of his victories, by his successes between 1805 and 1807, that transformed France into a continental hegemon. Mm-hmm. And that was really, really unique. Now, to focus on the man himself, what, and I'm sure many historians have looked at this, but I want to get your take, Making himself emperor, what was the point of becoming emperor, and then what sort of effects did that have on everything you studied? Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> it reminds me of uh, of Beethoven, right? Uh, when when he hears about the uh, Napoleon's decision to be an emperor, and he famously says to be a Bonaparte and to become a uh, Napoleon, right? To be this. Uh, general of revolution and symbol of revolutionary change, and then to <laughs> go back to this traditional monarchical system. Mm-hmm. Um, it is quite an interesting decision that Napoleon makes. Um, there's, um, it, it's a hard question to grapple with because um, this was not a popular decision. And uh, uh, when Napoleon crowns himself an, an emperor, there's a general who is in attendance uh, at, the, uh, uh, at the ceremony in, in the Notre Dame Cathedral. And he, uh, the general uh, turns to one of his companions and he says, to have lost so many men and to have a king back, right? What, what, a, what, a, what, a, what a scene. Mm-hmm. Um, Napoleon uh, had that streak. Uh, when he came to power, he came to power through uh, a coup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he certainly used military authority to consolidate his power. And this monarchical tendency, or more, I would say authoritarian tendency that he had, uh, is gradually increasing, um, so that it is a, a gradual progression from being a first consul to become a, a life consul to a decision to secure your power by enshrining yourself into law as, as, as a monarch. He takes advantage of the reality on the grounds in France, and that is uh, the population is quite uh, tired of the revolutionary turmoil, uh, population is ready for order and stability, and Napoleon certainly comes to power on that promise that he will bring order and stability to to France. Um, and um, he takes advantage of the relative uh, docility of the French population. We see that, in, for example, in the referendums that he organizes and the plebiscites, uh, there is a lack of involvement uh, from the people. Um, I, in the book, I actually provide um, numbers, specific statistics to show the different plebiscites and how many people participate in them. And we see that on average, about a third of people actually bother to go out and vote. And that allowed people, uh, scholars like me to uh, ask questions whether the rest, you know, the remaining two thirds were just uh, uh, being lazy or where they intentionally expressed their disapproval of the government by refusing to participate. But however you interpret, the reality was that those referendums took place and Napoleon could use them to justify this constitutionality of his decision. For him, uh, monarchy was a, a way of ensuring this law, uh, law and order uh, in France to avoid this revolutionary uh, turmoil. And this is where 
when we talk about Napoleon of Times, he's portrayed as the uh, revolution incarnate, right? We, we see that saying, you know, revolution is over, I'm the revolution, that Napoleon supposedly said. Um, but to me, Napoleon is not necessarily a, a child of revolution. In the mm. book, I'm making an argument that you, the best character, uh, characterization of Napoleon will be that he was the last of enlightened despots. Mm. Um, if we look at his reforms, these reforms are, of course, informed by revolutionary rhetoric, revolutionary ideology, but the roots of those reforms usually go back to this enlightened despotism and the reforms that were introduced uh, by uh, monarchs like Frederick the Great or uh, Joseph of, of, of Austria. Um, these are the reforms that were rational. These are the reforms that were designed to increase the effectiveness, efficiency of, of state uh, power. Uh, these were the reforms focused on tolerance, um, equality before the law. Napoleon introduces those reforms in France and, and makes them institution, institutionalized. But he, what he does along the way is he uh, constrains and in many respects reverses the more radical aspects of the revolution itself. So that's where I don't see him as this revolution incarnated necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he is he, the product of revolution because revolution opened the way for him to advance and rise to the very top. Right? Mm-hmm. Without revolution, he probably would have been just a junior officer in the royal army. But the revolution made uh, his rise to generalship possible and then uh, certainly his takeover. Uh, but his um, uh, his revolutionary credentials to me are a bit suspicious. To me, he's a last uh, of enlightened despots. And in that in that regard, when he becomes an emperor, it's this continuation and a reflection of that enlightened despotism. Uh, for the rest of Europe, in fact, the fact that he uh, the, the, his proclamation of empire is kind of reassuring. Um, uh, when I look at the Russian diplomatic correspondence. Uh, the Russian chancellor at this time, uh, Rumensov, actually writes a memo to the Russian emperor where he says uh, Napoleon becoming an emperor is actually quite good because it means that he will be tempering the revolutionary instincts, uh, the revolutionary impetus. He has effectively become one of you know uh, one of us. Now, not you know not in the sense that he became divinely blessed uh, ruler, but essentially he joined this monarchical club, and he will now be uh, uh, constraining the radicalism. Uh, and and he's true and he's right in this. Uh, Napoleon, um, in many of his activities, is um, anti-radical, anti-revolutionary. Uh, be it in, uh, for example, in his relationship with labor, or in uh, uh, in, in in even in the reversal of the uh, popular suffrage, or in his treatment of women. Um, right, women were relegated to this secondary position in, in a society uh, under the empire. Hmm. Now, and I know this isn't a biography of Napoleon, but I'll, I'll ask one more question focused on Napoleon, which is, I see him as um, similar to Alexander the Great in that he just liked to go out and make war, but he was also very focused on science and discovery. They seem to, both seem to want to learn new cultures and see what was out there. Is that a fair comparison? And, and do you have any comments on that? I don't see him as a uh, as a warmonger, uh, as he's sometimes portrayed. And I know there are um, my colleagues, especially my colleagues in, in Britain, who hold Napoleon responsible for the conflicts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do I, I do uh, make it clear that in my book that his policies didn't help. 
that he him pushing the envelope didn't help in the outbreak of the wars, but um, there are other factors involved um, in, in 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 creating this situation that uh, sustained this conflict for uh, fifteen well twelve years to be precise, from eighteen o three to eighteen fifteen. Once Napoleon comes to power, mm-hmm. now Napoleon uh, has a. a on, on a personal level, he has this remarkable intellectual curiosity. Um, he reads voraciously, um, both as a young officer and later on as an emperor. Uh, your readers might be interested in perusing his correspondence. You, they will discover numerous letters uh, that he deal uh, that deal with his efforts to develop his personal uh, library. Uh, for example, at the height of the empire, he demands a special portable library of several hundred volumes that will be later on expanded to some 3,000 volumes uh, that uh, were designed, they were specifically made of small size, so to be portable, so that he could take it on, with them on campaign. And he wanted them organized in categories, themes, history, geography, economics, so that while he's campaigning, he could read um, and, and, and enlighten uh, and inform his opinions. So from that point of view, he's quite an interesting uh, character, um, always trying to deepen his knowledge um, and, and, and improve. But from a, um, and, and that makes him, I think, very hard to uh, deal with, at least uh, while he's at his prime. Um, mm-hmm. So from 1801 to about 1810, um, he is at the best of his game and virtually unstoppable. Um, but Napoleon was also a micromanager uh, to a degree that is, to me, unpre- um, un- un- unprecedented. I, mean, I find very difficult to find other examples of a person who micromanaged things like he did. Um, in, in writing this book, but also other you know, previous books, uh, especially dealing with Napoleon's invasion to Russia, you see this man presiding, uh, not just leading this army that is colossal in size, right, hundreds of thousands of men, but also presiding over a massive empire that stretches from uh, Spain to uh, Port, uh, to Poland and from Denmark uh, down to Croatia. And, and he is a, as an emperor, he's responsible for leading and making decisions of it. And alongside, he makes these micromanagerial decisions where he requests orders, detailed orders on various local issues. Uh, one order that I came across was that when he's in Moscow, he notices a small battalion uh, sent in the wrong way in Italy and he castigates the commander for doing this. Uh, really, right? Uh, you are <laughs> in charge of empire, leading this massive army in the middle of uh, uh, right Russia, and you are caring about a few hundred men sent in the wrong direction? Um, or right, the famous, famous example of him reviewing and approving the statute of, uh, of a French theater, right, uh, while stuck in, in, in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this micromanagement um, has a, a, a negative impact um, because it, it essentially suppresses initiative in, in many parts of the French government and military. It's hard to act on your own when you know that this all-seeing eye of Napoleon, <laughs> uh, Tolkien's fans like his eye of a Sauron, right, is always uh, <laughs> following you and, and, and caring and paying attention to you. Uh, so there is always this uh, apprehension, what would the emperor do and, and how he will uh, react to it. Um, uh, and, and, and that hampers the French war efforts, um, especially after Napoleon moves beyond his prime. And and that is around 1812 and certainly 1314. Um, he still is 
you know, has glimpses of his brilliance, but he's not the man of 1805 or 1806. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Alexander Mikabaridze, author of The Napoleonic Wars. You can find more information on his Facebook page or on his academic page at Louisiana State University, Shreveport. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. If you're interested in other kinds of history, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. Why didn't, um, this is kind of a tangent, but, uh, why didn't the noble, the nobles of Russia just surrender and give in to Napoleon when he, when he took Moscow? You know, why did they, why did they, why would they rather have destroyed the country rather than give up to Napoleon? <laughs> well, because there is a national pride involved. Uh, mm -hmm. There is ideological difference involved. There is a cultural difference involved, even though many French, uh, Russian nobles were a franchise, so to speak, right? They spoke French fluently. They, they, they certainly were part of this larger uh, Europe-wide French cultural right uh, dominance. But what the War of 1812 did was to reawaken the more nationalist uh, streak within the society. Um, um, it, it was already there in earlier years, um, especially um, often uh, Napoleon defeats uh, Russia in 1805 at Austerlitz and then at Friedland. There is already uh, this desire to avenge the defeats, uh, and that desire only strengthens uh, uh, with time, uh, um, and so that by, for example, uh, by the time we get to 1809, uh, there is already in, in Russian society concern that the uh, the emperor of Russia, Alexander, might be might be uh, compromising too much with uh, with the French. Uh, for example, uh, uh, when Russia supported Napoleon's campaign against Austria in 1809, there was a, a huge outcry back at home uh, among the nobles. One of the best Russian generals, uh, uh, Peter Bagration, on whom uh, you know I, I've spent quite a, quite a few years uh, working on his biography. Mm -hmm. Well, Bagration refused uh, to take commission in the army uh, to to fight the Austrians, whom he considered allies, fellow allies against the French. Uh, there is an outcry uh, from the nobility, who, uh, as the French ambassador reported, uh, was, and I quote, as proud of Austrian victories as if they were our own, and everyone was enraged by the Austrian defeat at Wagram uh, at the hands of Napoleon. Mm. Uh, furthermore, the same uh, French ambassador in St. Petersburg was actually noting, this is uh, in the summer of 1809, that the state of agitation that spread in Russian society, I have never seen anything like it. Uh, in fact, in some circles of uh, this uh, stunned uh, ambassador reported there was even talk of assassination of the emperor if he continued on this work uh, on this path of collaboration with the French. And my favorite quote that I found came from a, an old field marshal, a Russian field marshal, who uh, uh, writes, and this is a quote: "Whoever might rule Russia in the future, we, the noblemen, would manage to preserve our property, but the Romanov dynasty." If it continues its current policy, we'll lose everything it has. Mm -hmm. So here is already a talk of a possible 
change, with a individual change. You know, the emperors of Russia tend to have accidents, certainly in the 18th century, uh, or even dynastic, as the uh, as uh, this uh, 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 Prozorovsky, the civil marshal Prozorovsky, uh, suggests. So um, there was no no possibility, at least I don't see it, of a Russian nobility uh, accepting Napoleon as such, or accepting this uh, uh, collabor- you know, uh, alliance, fully accepting alliance with, with France, not after what has happened, mm-hmm. and certainly not after Napoleon invaded Russia in 1812. And then it's, it's a matter of national uh, pride uh, and prestige. Though it seems that the nobles were willing to resist at the sacrifice of the, the merchants and the, the lower classes, that they, you know, they would suffer more with resistance than if they just gave in to Napoleon. That's. I would not, I don't think I would agree with that in, in, in that the nobility did suffer um, because, of course, the invasion uh, despoiled noble estates um, as much as it did right, in, in merchant class in, in, in cities. Mm-hmm. Now, Russia is less urbanized than Europe. Um, its, its urban population is much smaller and the middle class is far, is far smaller than in France or even in you know, Britain or, or Netherlands, for that matter. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, so the and the, when the war began, the war of 1812 began, we see actually um, this spirit of resistance, this this uh, this nationalist streak, uh, embraced by m- almost all categories of people, from the peasants, from serfs, peasants, uh, through the. Or, or urban poor to the middle class, what we call middle class, or mishanstva, uh, as it were called in Russia, to the nobility. It, uh, proper, the state, the imperial propaganda, uh, of course, made sure that this happened. Uh, any any voices to the contrary would have been right, uh, would have been suppressed. Um, but overall, I think the Russian society responded with the um, with the rejection of, of Napoleon rather than. Um, accepting any possibility of collaboration with him. Mm-hmm. Let me let me note here that there were instances, there were instances of collaboration. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, there was a a priest in in what is today um, Ukraine that uh, was collaborating, for example, with the with the French. There were certainly instances of local collaboration here and there, but these are isolated instances, not um, not large enough. To, to change something, and and that's where I think there was a there was a interesting debate of what might have happened. Let's say if Napoleon had issued a proclamation abolishing serfdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that that poses an interesting uh, question of what if uh, this the would the Russian serfs right, um, be willing to embrace the foreign aggressor if that aggressor promises them freedom. Um, now, from the available evidence, um, I, I lean to say no. Right? That, like in Spain, uh, we see the population rejecting um, the tangible changes that Napoleon brought, not necessarily because they, dis- they dislike the reform, but dislike the fact that they came with a foreign aggressor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that same uh, would have, the same reasoning would have played out in Russia as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, to step back at a global view. The results of the Napoleonic Wars, what, so, um, three things, uh, what changes, or two maybe, um, what changes did they have on m- warfare and military structure and organization? And two, what changes did they affect 
more in diplomacy, economy, that sort of thing. Um, so if we look at the military changes, then um, I think those changes are more pronounced in Europe than they are uh, outside Europe. You see uh, attempts to expand uh, these military changes outside Europe to various parts of, of the world, but they are not as pronounced. Now, what do I mean? Um, the French Revolution uh, has an impact on military affairs in terms of, for example, mobilization, right? The mass mass conscriptions. Uh, it has an impact on organization of the armies, for example, development of the combined arms corps system that the French lead at and that Napoleon brings to perfection with his Grande Armée in 18 of, of three, four, and five, which allows him to dominate the battlefields of Europe until 18. Uh, 11, and then these kind of changes, these, um, you know, reorganization of artillery, creation of core system, and then all that is then uh, borrowed in parts and pieces by other European countries. So we see reforms in Austria, right, in the, uh, in the wake of uh, defeat of Austerlitz. Uh, we see Prussian massive changes, right, in Prussia in the, in the wake of the debacle of 1806. Uh, we also see Russian military reforms uh, from 1805 to 1811. Uh, that bring these armies more uh, aligned with the French uh, military changes. But um, outside Europe, um, it, it's a bit harder to see that um, impact as pronounced. Now, the, the, I think the biggest area where we see that happening is, is the Middle East. Now, in the Ottoman Empire, for example, we see the uh, military modernization progressing slowly, but nonetheless, establishment of new schools, um, uh, 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 attempts to create a Western style, a European style military. Uh, uh, Sultan Selim III, for example, starts um, creating um, the new new style force, as they, as they were called, the Nizami Jadid forces, uh, that um, were dressed uh, in European style uniforms and tra trained in European style, and then organized uh, in European style. So, uh, and the introduction of these new style troops, these Amijadi troops in the Ottoman Empire, however, uh, caused a, a backlash. Uh, a backlash uh, from the traditional elements in military and society. So in military, this would be Janissaries. And in the societies, this would be the local elites, the ions, or the religious leaders, the ulamas, who condemned the introduction of this alien, right, foreign, infidel concepts within the Ottoman Empire, uh, not necessarily uh, because this overarching, this ideological view, but, all, but also because what it meant in practical terms. The strengthening of the Ottoman military with these Nizami Jadid troops would have meant uh, centralization of states' power, would have made the states stronger, the central government stronger, and would have made it, uh, would have brought it uh, more uh, stronger and, and more uh, effectively to this uh, on the local on 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 the ground, and of course for local elites that was not um, something that they would have wanted, right? That jeopardized their own interest. Um, we see a similar process have taking place in the uh, in in Iran. Uh, for example, in starting in 1807, there is a, an agreement between uh, Iran and France. Uh, the they both have a common enemy, Russia. And uh, Napoleon agreed to provide military expertise and train Iranian uh, army uh, to better fight and resist uh, Russian expansion and encroachment in the Caucasus. Mm. 
indeed, a, a military mission was sent under General Gardan to Tehran, and uh, they tried to start this process of introducing Western military reforms in Iranian society, military. But uh, like in the Ottoman case, we see similar problems, uh, resistance from the traditional uh, uh, groups, uh, and uh, these reforms uh, remain limited. Um, it, uh, after 1809, the French were uh, forced to leave uh, Iran, uh, and they were replaced by the British. In fact, uh, the British military mission was sent to continue the French reforms. Hmm. And In fact, from 1809 to 1812, uh, British officers trained, continued to train uh, Iranian army, and uh, they were actually involved in in, in, in a war with Russia in, in 18. Uh, 10, 11, 12, mm. British-led Iranian military was fighting against Russia, which is quite interesting considering that Britain and Russia were had a common interest in fighting French back in Europe. Yeah. Uh, these reforms, again, as I mentioned, uh, uh, were um, were not as deep or as impactful within Ottoman or Iranian uh, societies at this stage. Mm. They will be down the road, but that's the beginning. When it, uh, so this is in terms of military. Um, if, if we look at the um, events in North America or Latin America, the, these military changes are, are, are not pronounced yet. Um, far, great, uh, far greater uh, is the impact of Napoleonic Wars in terms of politics, um, economy. Um, in terms of politics, we can see, for example, that it is during Napoleonic Wars and because of Napoleonic Wars that we see the collapse of the Spanish Empire and the emergence of this uh, new uh, Central and South American reality of, of independent colonies, or, or increasingly independent colonies, that uh, a process that will take a better part of a decade and will culminate right in the in, in, in mid-1820s with the emergence of those uh, states like Argentina, Colombia, right, Venezuela, Mexico, uh, the, the, that we, we still have with us today. Mm-hmm. Um, in India, for example, the, we have a, a, also a very uh, pronounced impact of Napoleonic Wars. Of course, the European presence in India predates Napoleonic Wars. Um, we, we can see, right, starting with the Portuguese arrival in 1500, um, a growing presence of Europeans in India. Uh, but it is um, in the late 18th century that we see uh, Europeans really starting to intervene in local Indian affairs. And, and coming to dominate. And here, the British East India Company, of course, uh, played a crucial role. It was able, during the Seven Years' War, to establish its foothold in northeastern part of India and in an area of Bengal. And uh, f- as part of its uh, struggle against the French, or as part of the British struggle against the French, to, gro- to gradually uh, expel the French from the Indian uh, subcontinent. But by the time the revolution came to France, and by the time Napoleonic Wars began, um, the French still have presence in, in India in places like Pondicherry um, that is still under French influence. And more crucially, uh, the local Indian states uh, oftentimes recruited French officers to train their military, um, and that uh, posed a threat to the British interest, the British East India Company's interest in, in the subcontinent. For example. When we uh, when we talk about um, the uh, late 1790s, um, oftentimes the British East India Company used the excuse of the presence of the French officers at the courts of these various Indian rulers as 
as a, as a justification for taking action against the states, arguing that these states are pro-French, that they are under French influence and therefore they pose to a great threat to the British interest in India. Um, hence why we have attacks on the Nizam of Hyderabad, right, why we have the Anglo-Mysorean conflicts. Um, later on, when Richard Wellesley uh, becomes the uh, Governor General of British East India Company in 1798, he writes an interesting memorandum in which he uh, argues that uh, the primary goal um, for the British East India, East India Company uh, should be neutralizing this French threat in India and using this French boogeyman, hmm. uh, Wellesley then goes on an imperial conquest, which I discuss in my book. Uh, between 1798 and 1805, when he's recalled, Wellesley factually lays the foundation for the imperial British imperial presence in India, and he does it consistently by arguing that if we don't do it, French will do it. If we don't take over and force this local Indian states to trot pro-British line, Napoleon, French, they would do it. And so he takes these preemptive measures, giving the local rulers a choice. You're either with us or you are not, and if you are not, then we'll force you to be with us. Mm -hmm. Who would you say, uh, and this is a very subjective question, but looking uh, before 1792 and then after 1815, and ignoring sort of the ups and downs within the period, what nations do you think came out the most ahead because of the wars, and, and what nations really suffered at the end of the day because of what happened? I think the nation that benefited the most is, is clearly Britain. Um, Britain came out um, far, far better out of the war than um, any other nation. Um, to start with, naturally, the, the, natural, uh, the Napoleonic Wars played a huge role in this development of this na national sense of who we are. Right? Think about Nelson's victories over, you know, over French at Trafalgar and Abukir or the British exploits in, in e Egypt or Waterloo, right? Or in India, right? It, it all played a very important role in, in shaping the uh, national conscience, this national awareness um, within Britain. But also, uh, Britain emerged um, out of this war with probably the strongest economy of any European power. But, uh, yeah, I don't even need to say probably. <laughs> mm. They did. It, this was the uh, industrializing economy uh, that was in far better shape than other European continental powers. Uh, Britain also benefited from the fact that uh, we see the um, traditional uh, imperial structures in, in Latin America, in, in Central and South America, collapsing, which opened the ways for the British uh, goods, for the economic interests. I would remind, for example, that... Uh, when the Portuguese monarchy was uh, was forced to leave Portugal in 1807, uh, it moved to Brazil under the protection of the British Navy. And then once it settled in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, it one of its first decisions was to uh, essentially op uh, give British the preferential treatment when it comes to commerce. And that, of course, opened the path to the British inter uh, economic interest in the region. Um, same applies for the British efforts to enter um, the what used to be the Spanish colonial markets that has been denied to it for a very long time uh, by the Spanish imper uh, royal policy uh, that controlled very uh, rigorously the colonial trade. But after Napoleonic Wars, Britain has the ability to enter these 
spheres, its economic zones, and, and to its benefit. I just mentioned India, right? Britain certainly emerged uh, with a far greater footprint in India than it had before the Napoleonic Wars. And of course, it, uh, British retained South Africa uh, in 1815 uh, as a crucial waypoint from Europe to Asia, which is quite important for conducting commerce. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the um, second uh, country that I would identify as, as coming on top uh, is, of course, Russia. Uh, as uh, Russia in 1815 is in is in superb position um, of of influence, and, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't go as far as say as hegemony, but it certainly has a tremendous clout on the continent. Uh, Russia benefited from the Napoleonic Wars in terms of territory. By the end of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, they the uh, Russian Empire has acquired Finland. It acquired uh, what used to be the Duchy of Warsaw. Uh, so most of, of Polish state, or Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, as it used to be. Uh, it acquired Bessarabia from the Ottoman Empire in 1812, and it has consolidated its presence in my own homeland, in Georgia, which uh, Russians acquired between 1801 and 1815. Um, uh, and as part of that acquisition of Caucasus, they, they fought successful wars against the Ottoman Empire and Iran. Um, so, uh, in 1815, Russia is at the height of its power. Um, I, I think that's not an exaggeration, right? Having your um, troops parading down Champs-Élysées and, and camping there um, was a, a, a tangible testament to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Austria uh, certainly benefited from the Napoleonic Wars, although I would say it uh, you know, with qualification. Um, Austrians suffered a lot during the Napoleonic Wars. They've, they've suffered more defeats at the hands of Napoleon than most other nations. Uh, um, and But they were able, at the end of it, uh, to recover their positions and to benefit from Napoleon's, uh, from Napoleonic Wars in terms of structural changes within the empire, uh, but also within the um, Ger- Germany, um, since uh, by the end um, it is German confederation that Austria presides over. Um, same, same can be said about Prussia, and in fact to a greater extent, because what Napoleonic Wars did uh, is serve as a catalyst for profound changes within Prussia. Hmm. The debacle of 1806 uh, showed that uh, the current situation was untenable, that changes had to be uh, done, and, and rather painful changes. And those changes were introduced uh, because of the defeats. Uh, so between 1807 and 1813, we have that reform movement uh, presided by, you know, Scharnhorst, Stein, uh, and other Prussian reformers uh, who uh, made sure that by the end of the Napoleonic Wars, Prussian state was in a better in a better shape than it was before the Napoleonic Wars. Mm-hmm. I think France, uh, Spain, uh, Portugal. Um, those those countries and, and a few others that we can discuss if, if we have time came out the worst. Um, for all for all the success Napoleon have had, and oftentimes we forget this, right? Mm-hmm. Is that Napoleon is a loser. Ultimately, he lost, and France that he left behind was in a in a worse shape than the one that he inherited. Mm-hmm. In in 1815, France is deprived of all the acquisitions it had made, territorial acquisitions that it had made since 1792, right? It's back to the old regime France boundaries. 
the one big uh, legacy, however, that Napoleon left France was the reforms, right? the institutional reforms, the legal reforms that he introduced. Now, those stayed around, and that's to the credit of King Louis XVIII, that he understood the importance of keeping these reforms and continuing that uh, legacy of, of, of uh, structural change that Napoleon and the French Revolution bequest to him, even though many of his supporters, right, the ultra-royalists, wanted to reverse them. Now, those stayed in France, and, and they continue to uh, reverberate uh, for, for decades to come. Mm -hmm. But France has lost virtually all of its colonies. Uh, after 1815, France is not a colonial empire. Um, it, is a defeated, um, it is a defeated state in, in really in search of its national identity, um, which is one of the core reasons right, that we see those events play out, um, and including the revival of the Napoleonic dynasty um, in the 1850s. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just for the sake of time, I'll turn now towards uh, your research. Can you talk about some of the archives you used um, to get your information from? Yes. Um, uh, I, I tried to consult um, archives in, in as many countries uh, as I could. Um, so most of the research was done in three core areas, um, and that is uh, British archives, um, especially National Archives at Kew, uh, which um, in there I can uh, I, I try to uh, uh, tap resources at the War Office and the Foreign Office, the, the areas that were particularly interesting uh, of interest to me. It is, of course, the French um, archives, and here I spend a lot of time in the French diplomatic archives, like uh, Renov in north of Paris, and uh, as well as, as conducting research at the French military archives at Vincennes. And um, uh, lastly, uh, I did the research in uh, Russian archives, specifically the Russian military archives, uh, the Russian state historical military archive for Urgvia, that, that informed much of my discussion. I was able to utilize um, also documents from the Russian foreign uh, foreign ministry archives. Um, I tried also to consult, and I was able to consult documents from Swedish archives, um, Spanish archives, um, some German. Uh, but um, I think those the first three that I mentioned, the British, French, and the Russians, are the, the core. Uh, they represent the core of the uh, of the book's research. Was it at all necessary to visit any of the locations? Um that are included in the history, or is that when? Yes, um, yes, I did. Uh, um, it's um, even though there is a great progress done in terms of digitization, um, the archives um, contain really mountains, mountains of material that I don't see uh, being digitized anytime soon. Mm -hmm. uh, French are quite good at uh, at this process. Um, the French National Archives has. Um, Quite an important digital footprint. They they scan and, and make available documents, but um, this is just a little bit of this iceberg, really. That that's uh, that's out there. So uh, I did spend a lot of time there. Um, I was I, I did actually uh, conduct research at the Austrian military archives, but um, I was unable to visit it myself. Instead, I I hired a research assistant, hmm. a wonderful lady who spent hours. Um, uh, working there, and what I would do is I would um, identify specific collections uh, in the uh, Kriegsarchiv in, in Vienna that I needed to consult, and I would tell her specifically what documents I needed, and then she would 
uh, scan them and, and send them to me, and then I would sit at home and, and go through that. Um, so in that way, it was uh, economical <laughs> uh, for, for, for both uh, uh, for me uh, not to go to Vienna, but also for her to, to make some extra uh, income on the side. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you've written a lot about uh, this period, a few books, but for this one, uh, what was the most surprising thing you came across? I think the uh, uh, the scale of it. Um, you know, you you think you know the extent of it, uh, but once you start digging, uh, you realize how much uh, had happened at the time, and you also by the end of it, you realize how much still needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as I wrote this book, right, and it's a quite a lengthy tome. Um, it, it barely scratches the surface, and there is, uh, uh, and uh, I think I, I wanted this book to be as, as a call to action to for more transnational uh, discussion and, and research. There is a lot of uh, regional scholarship that is being done, but I think oftentimes that scholarship is isolated, and we need more discussion between these groups of scholars working in various areas, uh, geographic or, or, or thematic, uh, to, to produce. Uh, this more cohesive uh, narratives. So that's one area. Um, and, and another uh, was the, I think, this tug of war that you see between uh, the need for modernization and the desire to retain the traditional way of life. And uh, I, that's the thing that we still are dealing with and we're still grappling with um, in, in today. Uh, and and I, I found that quite interesting, for example, to explore the uh, Napoleonic attempts to uh, Napoleon's attempts to introduce modernization in uh, Italian or Spanish countryside, rural countryside, these conservative um, areas, and the backlash that uh, he received to it, um, and then draw parallels, for example, for myself with uh, with what's going on with this modernization, you know, struggle between modernization and traditional um, values uh, nowadays. It's not just Napoleon who struggles with them. British too, for example, one of the areas of research that uh, I personally found quite revealing was the British efforts to bring changes to Sicily uh, in in eighteen ten, eleven, twelve. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sicily is, is an island uh, which is protected by the uh, British Royal Navy, uh, so French can't invade it, but. The British also try to reform local society um, by bringing these changes that the locals are not particularly appreciative, uh, uh, even though they are, we can call progressive <laughs> from a modern point of view. So I, I found that quite illuminating, quite interesting to me. Um, and and then just digging in in behind this uh, behind the scene discussions. For example, um, I found. Uh, oftentimes myself just chuckling, reading Russian and the French correspondence and various plans that they had for um, restructuring Europe, uh, partitioning Ottoman Empire. And you see these diplomats, right, sitting in a room or, or sending uh, uh, letters to each other and deciding fates of hundreds of thousands, millions of people mm-hmm. without really uh, uh, much care for the uh, interests or, or, or that these people have, of, uh, you know, for example, partitioning of the Ottoman Empire. They discussed it uh, so many times without really uh, pondering what were the interests of the local population? What was the interest of the Ottomans uh, at stake? And, and I, f- I, f- I found that quite, quite uh, revealing. Mm-hmm. Was there a question, a particular issue that uh, you had a great deal of difficulty trying to get um, an answer to? Maybe you did 
come to a conclusion you were happy with, or maybe you still would like to get an answer? Um, there are many of them, and in, in some of them, I, I'm trying to follow up in this uh, ongoing research, uh, you know, current uh, book projects that I have. I think one of the one of the puzzling moments for me is Napoleon's stubborn refusal to make a deal in 1813. Um, just yesterday, I was reading um, the uh, Napoleon's downfall in 1814, and then his departure for Elba. And he has. I was reading this report from an Austrian general, Kurler, and in um, one of the moments, Kurler uh, asks Napoleon, you know, that. Hey, you know, you could have made a deal with us in 1813, and the deal would have been quite good to you. You would have been still on the throne, and you would have uh, retained a lot of territory and power. And Napoleon, uh, you know, listens to him. You know, he's silent for a moment, and then uh, he responds this, with this interesting uh, answer. He says, "Yes, well, uh, back then I was uh, cr uh, cradled in my own dreams, and and that." Kind of, you know, I find that interesting because time and again in 1813 and then time and again in 1814, Napoleon has the chance, has an opportunity to make a deal with the Allies. And time and again, he just casts it aside. He goes all out, gambles, and then loses. And I, and for a man of his intellectual capability, from the man that I've come to know quite well at his, at his, at his prime, right, when he's really remarkable. Uh, to, to observe him in, 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 in action, uh, to see then him um, act so irrationally um, and, and carried away by this um, idealistic or lofty ideal, it's, it's really hard for me to grapple with. And then in the book, I try to uh, uh, touch upon it, but it, it's not, uh, 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 I was not able to go into too much detail. So maybe down the road in another book, I might explore that a, a bit more. Okay. Did you have any difficulties getting this book uh, finished or published? Um, no. Well, yes and no. Yes, in terms of finishing, no, in terms of publishing. I was very, very lucky uh, and, and, and privileged to work with Oxford University Press, which commissioned this book. And uh, they were extremely uh, patient and, and kind to work with. Um, back in 2010, late 9, early 10, I was uh, discussing this book with them, and when uh, we agreed on terms, um, uh, they commissioned me to write it uh, within three years, and I thought that was plenty of time. Mm -hmm. And then uh, three years turned into four, then five, and seven, and, and Oxford was very patient with me every time I would uh, write back and apologize and say, I'm sorry, I couldn't finish it this year, maybe next year. They would say, that. okay, take your time. Ultimately, it took me ten years, mm -hmm. and they stood by me, uh, stood by me, and, and, and accepted the final product with very little changes. So, um, the final book is much, much longer than the one they had in mind, mm -hmm. but very, very kind in, in not asking for major revisions to it. Um, and so that that's where you know I, I did struggle in terms of finishing it uh, because uh, i thought it would be a smaller book more general so to speak mm -hmm. uh, but ultimately i thought that to to give uh, really to treat this topic with due respect and to highlight the complexity of this of this era uh, i needed to dig deeper and ultimately we have this mm -hmm. but i was fortunate that i had to work with with oxford and and uh, they were uh, very nice to me 
Yeah, at 960 pages and 29 maps, I imagine the editing must have been a little daunting. <laughs> well, again, I was uh, very fortunate to have Timothy Bent, mm. uh, a great editor at, at Oxford, who really taught me a lot of things, uh, both about the craft of history, uh, because he, he nudged me in, in becoming a better writer, and I hope the book bears the evidence of it, mm -hmm. but also by asking the pointed questions of why I did things or why is this necessary and, and then pointing out areas where maybe I was unclear or areas where it need to be fleshed out. So I was, I benefited a lot from working with, with Tim and I'm very grateful to him. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, so what's your current writing project or future ones? Um, I have several projects that are in, uh, underway uh, at different stages of completion. Uh, the uh, one big project is 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 a group effort. Um, me and my colleagues um, are working on on producing a, a multi-volume study of Napoleonic era for Cambridge for the uh, Cambridge History series, um, and it will uh, future. Uh, contributions from over 80 leading scholars from around the world, and I'm, I'm privileged to be a, a volume editor for that one. And it, it's a, a really a, a joyful experience for me to to work with these esteemed uh, historians. Uh, uh, as far as more in mono, monographs, um, the one um, the one I'm uh, working on uh, right now is actually a new biography of a Russian field marshal, uh, Mikhail Kutuzov. The, the great character from Tolstoy's War and Peace, but also a great hero of, uh, of Russian uh, right, military during the Napoleonic Wars, the man who defeated uh, Napoleon in 1812. Um, unfortunately, there is not much about him in English. His last uh, biography of his was published in English some uh, in 1940, uh, 1976, so uh, more than 40 years ago, and it is, uh, it is awful. <laughs> to, to put it bluntly, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to write. Um, uh, I'm about halfway through it, and then once this book is done, um, I'm actually uh, uh, doing research um, uh, right now, and, and we'll start writing on a topic that, to um, respond to your earlier question, on a topic that I touched upon in my Napoleonic Wars book, but I thought it required a bit more, and that is how United States acquired Louisiana. Mm -hmm. uh, the Louisiana Purchase is a you know, famous event. All of us have studied in, in school, right? The whole uh, one and a half cents per acre, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, doubling of the United States. But virtually everything that is written about this event is from American point of view, uh, and understandably so. But what I want to do is produce what I call Louisiana Purchase and International History, and to see the impact of that event, um, not just for the United States, but on Britain, on France, on, on, on Spanish Empire, uh, to, to cast the confines um, uh, of, of this traditional narrative to a, a more international dimension. And I already uh, have quite an interesting, uh, I think, new uh, discoveries, so to speak, that uh, will make this book uh, fresh and interesting to the reader. And when you mention that, um, I'm curious also, so that sounds fascinating, but also the Russians over on the West Coast I wonder if, you know, the expansion of the U.S., I forget what years, you know, there were pretty, there were a fair amount of Russians there, I think. Um, so I'm curious if there was an impact on their thinking as well, seeing the U.S. expand, you know, westwards. Absolutely. In fact, uh, one, um, 
in, in the Napoleonic Wars book, I touch upon these uh, competing imperial narratives that we see in uh, uh, on the north uh, eastern shores of the Pacific. Um, the Russians have been present in Alaska since mid 18th century and, and have been making inroads into what is today Canada, the coastline of Canada, and then all the way to United States Northwest. Uh, exactly during this during this period, mm-hmm. uh, your you know uh, your listeners probably remember that uh, it is in in the middle of this Napoleonic Wars in 1811, for example, that uh, we see the establishment of the Russian uh, fort in what today is San Francisco, right? Fort Ross. Mm. Or, for example, Russian efforts to penetrate uh, Hawaii um, and establish Russian presence there date during the Napoleonic Wars, although they are ultimately unsuccessful. Mm. Uh, And indeed, uh, this Russian presence along the uh, Pacific coastline of of what is today United States posed uh, some considerable concern, in fact, for the Spanish, who had claims to it, for the British, who also made claims to it, um, and uh, increasingly United States, uh, especially in the wake of the Louisiana Purchase and the Lewis Clark expedition, which uh, brought right this understanding of what's out there. In, in, in the book, I touch upon the Nootka Sound incident uh, that predates Napoleonic Wars, but is crucial to, to the story of this revolutionary Napoleonic Wars uh, in this part of the world. And that Nootka Sound incident involved uh, Russian, Spanish, British, and American interests all converging in this part of, uh, of uh, area around Vancouver. Uh, um, that, that is a good, a, a good example of, of the impact of this European imperial um, uh, rivalries on the remote corners of the world. Wow, I, I would never have imagined Vancouver uh, being connected to Napoleonic war history. <laughs> well, revolutionary, but uh, yeah, uh, Napoleonic too. In fact, uh, y'all would suggest uh, this is one of those again area you know to uh, to respond to your earlier questions of what things you discover, and that is the how experience of Hawaii during the Napoleonic uh, period, especially towards the end of it, where we see these adventurers uh, who make appearance, Russian adventurers who make appearance in Hawaii, and there is the actually a Cold War between Russians and the Americans over the control of Hawaii in 1815-16, where both sides are jostling for the control of the islands and they send uh, uh, warships and, and um, armaments to shore up their, uh, their areas, so, uh, which is quite, quite, a reveal, quite an interesting uh, moment in history. Hmm, yeah. So where can people find you on the web? Do you have a social, uh, web page or social media? Um, I, I'm uh, active on, on Facebook. Um, they can uh, just simply look me up under my first and last name. I'm, I'm, I'm also present on Twitter, though not as actively. Um, and uh, my, I have a, a website for it, uh, lsus.edu, um, and then they can just simply search my last name. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very good at responding emails. I receive uh, daily inquiries, and I'm always keen on hearing from people who have read my research and who have any either comments or feedback or criticisms even i i, I enjoy um, um, you know corresponding with people of, with shared interests so mm-hmm. please uh, feel welcome to contact me i'll spell your name for anyone who wants to google uh, alexander is a l e x a n d e r and mika baridze is m i k a b e r i 
D-Z-E. That's right. So that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Uh, no, I, you know, just thank you for this opportunity. Uh, I, I really enjoy conversations like this, and um, I, I appreciate your time and effort. Oh, yeah, I appreciate your time as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it and review it if possible. I have many other options as well to get great military history information. You can find links to interesting military history videos on my Facebook page, War Scholar. You can find links to interesting military history news articles, military history archaeology information, and academic information on my Twitter page, War Scholar. You can find photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez War Scholar. You can find my military history videos on my YouTube page, War Scholar 1945. You can also sign up for my newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. In the newsletter, I post additional video and news links, as well as regular updates on new military history books being published. Thank you for listening.